Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Since today's program is a bit longer than usual, I'll dispense with my usual witty remarks and <laughs> and begin instead by trying to paint a verbal picture of what it was like on the playa at Burning Man this year when Anne and Sasha Shulgin gave their presentation in the big tent at, in Theon Village. It was only a couple of hours before they were scheduled to talk when I discovered that the village had run out of biodiesel fuel and the generators had quit running, but before I even had a chance to become concerned, good old Darren, Mark, Michael, and the rest of the sound crew were already busy setting up a portable generator to provide enough backup power to operate our amplifier. Unfortunately, the little generator didn't provide enough power to also run the big exhaust fans that had helped to cool the inside of the tent on previous days. And so by the time the Shulgans began their question-and-answer session, it was hot, as in <laughs> really hot inside uh, what the satellite photos now show to be the largest structure at this year's festival. And it wasn't just the desert heat that made it so hot. The tent was packed. The front row of the audience was only a couple of feet away from where the Shulgans were sitting, and the crowd spilled way out into the esplanade. I don't think there was a single space left to sit or stand anywhere near the huge tent that afternoon. So uh, I have no idea how many people were there, but it was certainly our week's largest crowd, and that's really saying something because we had overflow crowds for several of the other speakers as well. So that's a, a little idea of what the conditions were like, but you don't have to take my word for it. Just go to matrixmasters.com and click on the Burning Man photo link where you can see a few pictures that I took during the talk that you're about to hear, which is the Palenque Norte 2006 edition of Ask the Shulgans. Um, I'd like to say something about the questions, by the way. Um, there, there are some people who would love to ask something that they are afraid might sound a little bit confrontational or, you know, disrespectful or something like that. Um, please don't uh, think that way. Um, confrontational questions are more fun for us than anything else, actually. So don't hesitate, okay? And I, I would like to make one request on questions. Uh, don't bring up questions such as how much uh, phosphorylchloride chloride do you add to psilocin to make psilocybin? <laughs> not, 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 not today. <laughs> and don't be shy. There are only two million people watching you. I'm not shy. <laughs> I actually have no voice left, but um, I just want to ask a very general question. What do you think the future of psychedelics is? What's in the making now that's going that, you know, what's the future of this? What's the next level? Well, I think much of the future has been, uh, see, is being seen in England and Europe now. And I'm very much afraid that with our current uh, enthusiasm on war on drugs, 
and as a, the enthusiasm of using that war as a political device to get power in Washington and funds in Washington, that I think in the United States is going to be quite a while before we become rational uh, in the war. I don't think the, the future is very, very bright in this country. The um, um, tendency to let, let me give an example. The word is used by the DEA quite often of something that is not illegal. Uh, and this was in, a, in a, one of their, their uh, brochures on uh, salvia divinorum, that salvinorin A as a compound and salvinorin, um, the uh, uh, actual plant, oh, actual plant uh, was uh, salvia divinorum, uh, was a, an illicit plant or an illicit compound. And I'm not certain what they mean by illicit. It does not mean illegal, but they refer to anything that is in the psychedelic area as being illicit. So I don't think they are going to relax their enthusiasm to make more things uh, illegal. Um, I guess I'm the optimist uh, in this case. Uh, there are so many, whoops, is this working? Can you hear with back? Okay. Um, there are so many people, uh, especially in Europe, but uh, not only in Europe, who are making things and uh, even writing little pamphlets and exploring. I mean, there are a lot of people who love chemistry and uh, uh, like the altered state. And uh, they are all over the place being pretty discreet. If they're not discreet, they get into trouble. And the laws in England, uh, thanks to Amanda, a, a great deal of uh, the work has been done by her Beckley Foundation. The laws are being looked at uh, for probable revision. And the laws in uh, the other countries of Europe are beginning to change. And I think that even if the United States uh, stays in its uh, hardened position for quite a while, uh, it will eventually uh, be left alone in that position. So I think things are going to change. Okay, somebody over here? Sure. I'd like to know what each of your favorite uh, chemicals are that you've developed and a little bit of why. <laughs> if you had one to take to heaven with you, which would <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, I tend not to try, I try not to get favorites because I like to keep my liver fairly clear for new materials. <laughs> and um, uh, you don't want to get into habits of drug use. I, I refuse to become a chronic drug user. Well, in the sense that known drugs. Uh, <laughs> but I think probably of the materials that I have explored and looked around, I think 2CB ranks very high on my, on my list. And for me, um, I think of, of the, uh, the great uh, legendary ones, uh, mescaline is one of the uh, truly uh, most uh, fantastic drugs. Oh, ac actually, it's uh, the peyote, which is a visionary plant. But um, of, the, of, of Sasha's and uh, Dave Nichols' uh, productions, I think 2CB fly. And I'm not going to explain what that is because I don't know chemistry at all. But the fly is probably uh, the best. 
yeah, going to heaven drug. Well, heaven on earth drugs. <laughs> we have somebody over this way. Come on up so at least I can get you the mic. Uh, you don't have to come all the way up and make a path for these venturesome people, if we could. And, uh, and, and those of you that want to ask questions, if you start kind of coming up this way, we can't stand right in front of that amp, that mic. Thank you. Hello. Um, this is kind of a personal question. I just finished my uh, bachelor's in botany. And I'm one, say again. I just finished a bachelor's in botany in England, bachelor's degree. And um, I was wondering if you would know names of people who are carrying out ethnobotanical expeditions now on, um, on interesting psychoactive plants. Because it's kind of hard to find out. Botanical expeditions? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Um, no, but, but I think you can find them listed in, um, what are, are, the, are the little magazines that list uh, trips to the Amazon and things like that? Oh. In Theogen Review, maybe one. In Theogen Review, and there was a Shaman's Drum. That's the one I was trying to remember. A Shaman's Drum, and there, there's at least one other one, isn't there? Oh, those are the main ones. Uh, they, they have ads in, in those magazines which uh, tell you, you know, what's going on. Hi. Um, could you tell me what your thoughts are on using psychedelics in psychotherapy? Um, hmm. Well, I, I did use um, psychedelics and MDMA, which is not, strictly speaking, a psychedelic, uh, before it became illegal um, in psychotherapy as a, a lay therapist. And I think MDMA is uh, the greatest possible drug for that. Uh, it's, it's a good drug for people who are um, naive in the psychedelic area uh, because, strictly speaking, it, is, it doesn't give you psychedelic effects. Uh, some people get psychedelic effects on anything, but MDMA, <laughs> uh, MDMA um, is an insight drug. Uh, it, it may be used for raves and things, but, but it's, its greatest use is uh, for personal insight without fear. And uh, I've, I've uh, heard several psychotherapists say that uh, with using MDMA, the patient and the therapist save uh, around six months' worth of time and money. Uh, and uh, there are other drugs. Uh, 2CB is also very good, but uh, 2CB is a full-blown psychedelic. And uh, you'd want to do MDMA work for at least six months to a year uh, before you, you start with the MDMA. Uh, there uh, probably are other very good drugs, but the drawback of some of them is that they last too long. Um, too long in the sense that you can only do, have one patient a day. And uh, <laughs> therapists uh, have to make a living too. <laughs> so that's the answer I have. Thank you. Actually, uh, one of the concepts with the use of MDMA in therapy 
is the dropping of the personal barrier. Very often, uh, from what I understand in the therapeutic psychotherapy, sometimes it takes six months of visits every week to have open yourself up, uh, drop your own barrier to be able to address your own problems. And the therapist has to be patient to, to put up with that. The MDMA can make it occur in an hour, hour and a half. And hence the entire therapeutic repair can start on the day of visit rather than six months after the day of visit. Uh, this is mainly because the first thing that has to be established in a, a therapeutic relationship is trust. And for somebody who is really damaged and hurting, um, it's very difficult to trust uh, anyone, and the therapist uh, is included. Uh, with MDMA, uh, somehow it manages to allow the trust right away, or very quickly. But we don't know how it does it, but it does. Yeah, hi. Um, I think drugs are a wonderful way of exploring different realms of consciousness, but that uh, the repeated use of them to attain those states of consciousness is um, hopelessly materialistic and dangerous to the uh, individuated self that Western uh, evolution of consciousness had worked so hard to achieve. Do you have any thoughts on your creations as potential contributions towards uh, sub-rational states of consciousness and, and you know, that people lose themselves to the being of the drug and become consumed by the line? Well, one of do you want, do you want to hit? No. Okay. Um, one of the uh, words I very much dislike when I hear it used because it's often used to to avoid the real problem is the word of addiction. I don't like the term of drug addiction because it, it implies a. a I, I, no, let me say what I do like, and that is the dependency. You can be physically dependent, or you can be psychologically dependent on a drug, or both. And I think the idea of any drug dependency has taken and taken from your choice, from your choosing the route you want to take, uh, having given up that freedom of choice. So I'm very strongly against the chronic use and reuse of any drug. And uh, this applies to not just psychedelics, but to stimulants or sedatives or, or things that are actually required to be used again and again. I think they should be altered, uh, should be changed around to other, other alternatives. The idea of being totally dependent upon a drug, I find it a very uncomfortable, very uncomfortable feeling. Um, almost every one of uh, the, the spiritual traditions and religions uh, warn against using drugs. Um, I think that my, my a hunch is that that is because they are talking to uh, the majority of people and uh, it's a very tempting uh, path and they, uh, the people who wrote the, uh, the books for the various religious traditions uh, probably knew the effects of visionary plants and I think that they um, wanted to avoid or have their followers uh, avoid uh, habituation or dependency. Uh, but also because once you realize uh, that you can make contact with uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, God or the source or the ground of being uh, by yourself without an intermediary, uh, 
uh, it's uh, liable to put some of the, the gurus out of business. Um, I think that what, what did, uh, some of the psychedelics do is they tell you that there is a someplace else or um, another reality or uh, many other realities. Uh, and it, it uh, can confirm uh, your hope that there is a spiritual uh, realm inside yourself and that there is um, a something, an intelligence, a consciousness uh, that drives the universe. The rest of it, I think, cannot be done with drugs all the time. You have to do some kind of uh, spiritual practice uh, and so that you, you can take the lessons of the psychedelic experience uh, into your daily life. Otherwise, uh, the whole thing is pretty much wasted. Um, Dorian Sagan, the, the love child of Carl Sagan and Lynn Margulis, has written uh, of drugs as, and this is his term, exogenous hormones, that is hormones that lie outside of our bodies. And in that there's the implication that we need these exogenous hormones in order to develop a fully mature form as human beings. Could you comment on that, please? I think one of, my, <clears throat> one of my comments that came into mind was my first mescaline experience, as an, maybe an exogenous hormone. <clears throat> I'd been exploring various psychoactive drugs for quite a while. Different, different well-known here, different things, different uh, compounds, different plants. And it was in the, in the, I guess, 1950s that I actually took my first mescaline experience. And I suddenly realized that there was a great deal of, I, I learned not from this, the mescaline was not doing it. The mescaline was allowing me to do it. And I would see something and I'd interpret something, but at the vision of the colors I saw, I had never seen before, but they were not in, in this white crystal, they were in me. I was aware of them, but I had never, never acknowledged them. So this is a, a sense of a, of a hormonal thing, and it, indeed exogenous would be, a, would be a good word for it, because it came from outside of me. But once it allowed me to understand why, as a, a child, I would sit and look up into the flower beds above me and see things that I could not see in a normal way, I relived all that and I began understanding why I did that. And the relationship of me and other people was um, obvious to me because I was avoiding other people in some ways by going into the flower bed and looking at the flowers. And I just never quite thought of it. I see a bee. Um, gathering honey, or where a bee ga gathers from a from a bunch of pollen, pollen, I guess, yeah. And to see the point of view of the flower from the bee's, bee's point of view. Uh, at the end of that very very life changing experience, my first medicine experience just changed the whole direction of my of my research and my interests. Uh, the to uh, one of the things I was telling someone a couple of days ago. I had a flower uh, that, that I had growing in the house, living in Berkeley at that time, and uh, I could not pick the flower in the field. It would destroy the flower. It, just, it, it, it was undoable under the influence of mescaline. And I looked at that flower in the house, and I looked down inside of it and see beautiful colors toward the, toward the center of it. 
which was actually never seen before. The next experiment I made, one of my first synthetic variety, variations on this, was to make a methyl group into an ethyl group and see if it would do the same sort of thing. I had a slightly more potent compound. It was the ethoxy counterpart. And uh, I was curious if it was the same, same type of action that was not. In fact, I had a flower in the uh, living room and I looked in the flower to see if I can see the peculiar, strange colors, and I didn't have any hesitation tearing the flower apart to look. And I looked inside, but the, the flower fragmented the flower, something I could not have done on mescaline, and something I did casually on the ethoxy compound. So I began then to realize slight changes in the molecule may change potency, but may change the quality of the experience, and might make some things apparent that were not apparent, uh, under the other ones or the other way about. Be unable to find some aspect of your own personality that you would like to investigate, which you could with one compound and not with another. Uh, each drug opens a different door inside you. But um, to, to confirm what, what Sasha is saying, uh, what you get out of a psychedelic experience has to be within you, uh, and it's just that um, in in our hurry uh, and our our everyday life, uh, the way we live it uh, now, especially, we don't take the time uh, to try to explore the insides of ourselves. Um, a great deal of information about uh, these other parts of yourself come through in dreams, but. Um, the learning you can do from that uh, is uh, a little bit more limited, and some people just cannot remember their dreams. But dreams are a, a very, very uh, good way of getting messages from your own unconscious. But again, the experience is not in the drug, it's in you. Anyway, um, uh, what do you think about the difference between low dosages and high dosages of, uh, say, MDMA in terms of getting the best results for therapy? I notice a lot of people take large, large amounts, uh, which seems to me to cause more distractions, both physical, like too much energy rolling through it. And sometimes low dosages are actually better for just inner work. Uh, that uh, that depends um, a great deal. First of all, the first uh, experience with MDMA uh, I think uh, among all the people, all the therapists I met, lay and otherwise, uh, who, who had used MDMA in therapy, um, I think most of them would not use more than 125 milligrams the first time. Uh, there are some people um, for whom 100 is enough. And, and I, when I was uh, doing uh, therapy, I would start with 100 milligrams, no more, because some people are very sensitive to it. Um, but also, uh, uh, apparently, if uh, you weigh more than the average, um, you, you need a little bit more uh, than a, a skinny person. Uh, I really didn't believe that, but uh, there was one uh, very, very nice lady who was uh, uh, who wanted a first experience with MDMA, and she weighed about, uh, well, quite a few pounds overweight. And uh, she couldn't really get the effect until 
We tried uh, her on 150 milligrams, which is uh, really quite a lot. Uh, as far as, uh, you asked specifically about MDMA. Um, I think that with most uh, psychedelics, uh, it is much, much better to be modest in, in your dosage. Um, I think that if you, if you overdose, you're going to lose uh, any of the learning that you got. You're just going to be stoned. And being stoned might appeal to some people, but you don't learn much. Uh, so I, I think uh, lower is not always better, but usually uh, it is. Uh, I hate to, to, to make generalizations like that because there, there are always exceptions, but I think it's, it's safer to go with lower. At least until you um, have had enough experience with that particular drug to know what your reaction is. It, it could be quite individual. First of all, I'd like to bless you for the work you've done and the courage you've had in, uh, in bringing this out to the world. Sorry, uh, I haven't had too many psychedelic experiences, but I'm wondering how you can tell whether it's a path that you should go down or whether it's a path you should avoid, because I've had very mixed experiences, and uh, thank you. Woof. Uh, is it a path you should avoid or a path you should go down? I don't know how you can answer the question until you start down the path. <laughs> I, I really don't. <laughs> uh, you... <laughs> No, I, I, I've really I had a very good friend who wanted very much to try MDMA. He had never taken any psychedelic, but he wanted to try MDMA. Uh, he lived right across the street from a bar, and uh, every evening after he came home from work, he would be in the bar until it closed at 2 o'clock, and then stagger across the street and, and um, go to bed and go to work the next day. But he wanted to try MDMA, and I was always avoiding giving it to him because of two reasons. One, he is a chronic alcohol user, therefore he may be a chronic drug user if he got into drugs. But secondly, he could not tolerate homosexuals. He just, he, he, he was actually became almost vigorously, actively voicing the disgust of people who are homosexual. And I had the feeling if we were to open that door in him with MDMA, he may find that in his inner self, he believes he may be one. At which point, he being larger and heavier than me, I might get pounded into the floor. <laughs> so there's an example of an area in which I think uh, good judgment would tend to avoid having him get down this path. But in general, my feeling is the path, the doors down the hallway uh, to say, should you go through them or not, can't really be answered until you know what's on the other side of that door. Um, there, I, I would uh, come up with a, an exception to that, and that is if you really are, um, for reasons you can't understand, if you're really scared uh, to try a, a psychedelic, um, and uh, especially if all your buddies are telling you you really should uh, have this experience. I would go with your instincts because uh, there are some people who are extremely sensitive who do not need 
uh, to open those doors with psychedelics because they open rather easily without them. And they should not use psychedelics. Um, uh, people who are a little off balance, uh, who are not very strong in their core self, um, and uh, people who are young enough so that they, they haven't really um, coalesced uh, that, that feeling of, of I-ness. Uh, they, they are still not fully formed. Uh, I hope I'm not sounding uh, too exotic. Uh, it, it's, uh, by the time you've reached 30, you have a real sense of, of uh, the I am, I exist. But uh, sometimes it takes quite a while into your, your late 20s before that is really uh, strong and firm. And before that, it can be uh, quite risky for some people uh, to take the psychedelic journey. So especially if there are uh, uh, quite young people whose, whose pals are uh, telling them he really ought to try uh, so-and-so and whatever, um, he shouldn't do it. He should uh, stick uh, to his guns and say, no, I'm not ready for it. I don't really want to try it right now. Uh, go with your instincts. Thank you. Want to also thank you for your work. Um, so I'm a social worker, and my question is actually related to the last question. I'm curious about um, using psychedelics in therapy with clients who are maybe mandated to treatment or are in extremely high trauma ongoing situations, very poor populations, abused, neglected, et cetera, and just curious about the applications there. Um, I found since I since I worked um, uh, during the, the two and a half or so years that I did uh, some psychedelic therapy, I worked with a hypnotherapist. Um, I would say this may sound like heresy, but I think that the hypnotic trance will open the same doors that psychedelics do, and I think that. I really would strongly uh, urge anyone who is going to become a therapist to learn uh, hypnotherapy, especially from uh, what they call Erickson uh, training. And uh, of course, you have to uh, find the right teacher, the right hypnotherapist, but that is a very valuable tool and you're not breaking the law. Uh, but even when, when the laws do change, um, hypnotherapy might be far, far better. Hi, I also would like to thank you for all your work. And um, if you could share something about the quality of your experience with Pachyseria Pringali, maybe using like San Pedro or Peyote experience as a baseline for us. Well, I, I, uh, my first, actually we had um, had four experiences, I believe, uh, with the extract of the Pachyseris pringlii. Yeah. Uh, our experiences, at least from my point of view, on the, on this, this was up in the north of Sacramento. You remember? Yeah. yeah. Um, the second, uh, was one was in the evening, and the next, I believe, was the next day. 
On the, the second round, the uh, third and fourth uh, experiences, the person who prepared the extract, which is prepared in Baja, California, and brought up to us and friends of his and friends of ours, uh, the second experience, the third, third and fourth experience, uh, were extremely difficult for me. I found myself, uh, in fact, the batches we had were four different uh, collections from the same extract, but it was brought in four different vials. And uh, there were 12 of us. And each, one vial went to three, the next vial went to the next three, the next vial was the third, and the, the fourth group had the, the remainder of this. Two of the vials produced in the six people who took it extreme nausea and, and illness. The other two vials produced a very good visual experience uh, on the part of the six who used it. And so I was, one person there was a, was a uh, biochemist. And uh, he took a sample of the good and the bad, the residues from the vial, the good and the bad, to see if there was some, uh, something growing in there. Some, some perhaps some mold or some something that produced the, the, the illness. I took it for GCMS and a quadrupole uh, study of what may be present in one, these two that were not present in the third and fourth. And neither of us found a single thing to explain this. Th this gave me a very, some great hesitation on exploring the psychological uh, aspects of the can The cactus itself, I've had a great deal of pleasure with looking at it by mass spec. And uh, there's no trace of mescaline in it. But there are a number of isoquinolins and a number of uh, phenethylamines that are uh, not active by themselves, but maybe in the presence of the isoquinolin uh, as a monamine oxidase inhibitor, they may be active if you eat the cactus. It's sort of a, a counterpart of uh, ayahuasca, where each component in itself is not active, but in combination they are. And I think the same may be true with the compounds inside of the uh, 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 pringlei. I have two questions for you. Um, the first, I was wondering if you know anything about the use of 5-HTP to rebalance serotonin depletion from MDMA or related molecules, especially in terms of dosage and timing. Um, and the other question, I was wondering if you had done any research or experimentation with the use of nitrous oxide in combination with other psychedelics to open deeply spiritual altered realities of consciousness. Actually, uh, these questions are rather simple for me to answer, namely, no, no. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I know of the, a lot of work has been done with hydroxytryptophan as a uh, serotonin replacement thing, but I have not any experience personally, and the literature is pretty much uh, supports its use in that direction. So in the literature, I believe it is supported. I have no personal experience whatsoever. Um, on the, sec the uh, second point, what was the second one? A nitrous oxide. Uh, nitrous oxide, I still have to, I always offered it when I go to the dentist. Uh, and I always decline it because for me it has almost no effect. Anne has quite a bit of effect from it and uses it. And the combination of it with uh, other materials I am not familiar with. Um, Anne uses nitrous oxide only at the dentist, by the way. <laughs> Um, one, the only uh, experience I've had with that was uh, not a particularly happy one. 
Um, I had a, a patient for a while who loved nitrous oxide and who used it all the time. And um, we worked very hard on um, certain aspects of, of his problems. He had quite a lot of depression, which is probably why he was using the nitrous. Um, and he considered himself pretty much an expert on, on nitrous. He knew all the dangers and how to avoid them. But then about uh, six or eight months after we'd started work, um, he, he took uh, the, the, the nitrous container, whatever you call it, and uh, uh, got himself into bed. And to make sure that he didn't waste any, he uh, pulled the sheet over his head and over himself. And of course, he died. Uh, so my feelings about nitrous are it's dangerous, and if, of course, it, it doesn't have to be dangerous, uh, but if you find yourself wanting to take uh, any particular drug continuously, ketamine is the other example of something that is really dangerous from our point of view. Um, if you find yourself wanting to be in that world uh, preferably um, all the time. You just don't don't like the ordinary world as much. Um, uh, do some some work on yourself and find out what's going on because that's that's not good. Uh, one additional point on nitrous oxide uh, and a very severe warning: never use industrial grade nitrous oxide. Always use medical grade nitrous oxide. Industrial grade nitrous oxide contains small but detectable amounts of nitric acid, and this is uh, very, very damaging to breathe. Oh, that would be food quality. That would be, should be fine. A, a two-part question. Um, I'm very familiar with the deep insights and healing and blessing that come from uh, these medicines, and I thank you both and all of the architects and artists of this space. But also as a health-conscious Libra, wondering if you could speak a bit about any knowledge on like toxicity or overload or something, whether brain or kidney metabolism or endocrine and just speaking on, you know, moderate doses, several times a season sort of thing. And the second part of the question is, I feel like many environments encourage us to use these medicines in a sort of a passive way, like to taking in the music, taking in the art, taking in the fluorescent everything around. And I feel very called to use them in more of a creative, active way, yet my brain doesn't seem to be catching up with my purpose. Wondering if there's, I feel like things I've done before would be redundant. Is there anything that, say, does to the brain what MDMA does to the heart? Oh, my God. Oh. <laughs> simple question. Simple. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, let's see. <clears throat> Toxicity and um, brain uh, versus heart. Uh, Gosh. Oh, yeah, okay, I'll give that one to <laughs> uh, One thing on toxicity, uh, 
there, what are, so we used to have a research group would meet every time there's a new drug to be explored, about 10 or 12 of us, all of us quite experienced, all of us knowing I'm quite sensitive, and I'll take a little bit less than, the, than what appears to be the amount. I'm quite insensitive, hard head, and I'll take a little bit more. And so each person had his own way of titrating the amount of a new material uh, based on what Ann and I would find out as the probable range in which you'd be active. One time I had one compound, it was one of the sulfur compounds, and we were exploring it, and one of our group uh, went into a very strange place. He disappeared, for one thing, out of the living room, and um, we finally found him. Not that way, he didn't just... No, we noticed he wasn't with our group. Anyway, we snooped around, and he had gone to bed and pulled the blankets up around him. So he was really getting quite, quite warm. We got him out of bed, and uh, he was not with us. Uh, yet he's uh, equally experienced to all of us, but in this particular compound, he had apparently a very strong hypersensitivity. And uh, no way of predicting that. He uh, spent quite a bit of effort to walk out to the stairway that went down to the living room where we were, he couldn't make it down those stairs in any way whatsoever. So we, one person got on each side of him and he put his hand around the shoulders of each of us and went down a step at a time. Went over to sit in the, uh, on, on, the, on the sofa near the window. He was in a strange place, yet he's, he's fully experienced as any of us with these materials. If this particular compound was for him a very, very triggered stuff that we're totally unexpected and uh, cannot explain. So uh, it was about, what, about an hour, perhaps, he came out of this. Oh, more, than that. more than that. And when he came out, he said, I've never been on a more beautiful beach in my life. <laughs> the complete visual hallucination. Uh, so I, I was very, very curious, because I, I think it was a thiopropyl or something on the four position. And so what I did, I, I thought maybe he had, a, since his sulfur is interestingly metabolized and differently by different people. I made up a series of compounds of sulfur that had different degrees of oxidation state, a thio, a methyl thiobenzene, and then made the sulfoxide and the sulfone. And my idea, I tried it up to 100 milligrams with no action, which made it fine for me. And I felt that I, then I would look in my urine for metabolites, and perhaps I metabolized it this way, and all of us metabolized this way, except he might metabolize it that way. So it may be a, an, a, a biochemical approach to the disposition of the, of the compound that made it more toxic or more strange to him. And if you find that, then you can pursue it as a new form of uh, direction for research. And I took, uh, a, I think, 100 milligrams of the compound and could find no trace of any of it in my urine by GCMS. So I abandoned the whole, the whole research project. Um, that uh, is an example of hypersensitivity. It's not a predictable thing. You have no way of knowing that in your group that that person over there if you're going to share a new drug, might be extremely responsive to it, and maybe negatively responsive to it. I don't know a way of predicting it. And here's a person who is thoroughly familiar with this entire area of, of uh, chemistry, and it was unpredictable and uh, <laughs> a little scary. Well, it, it was scary for us. For him, uh, it was apparently a, a lovely experience. But another thing that happened is that um, um, he began forgetting. Uh, amnesia took over. Uh, he could not remember anything that had happened uh, before. Uh, but he remembered the beach and uh, the feelings. Uh, 
just enough to be able to tell us that, that it had been a, a lovely experience. Uh, but again, you, that's one of the arguments for taking uh, very low or, or giving very low dosages for a first time. Uh, but in this case, that, that wouldn't have uh, helped the situation. Uh, one other material that is, can be very tricky to some people, and yet uh, to a large measure it is predictable, is not really a psychedelic, but more of an, a true hallucinogenic, namely scopolamine. About one person in 50 or 100 or 150 is very sensitive to it, and anyone who does take it should always try a, a tenth of the dose first to make sure that it is not, he is not one who is, is sensitive. We had one person, a psychiatrist, who was visiting it, and we, we were putting scopolamine, he wanted to try scopolamine, I said sure. And um, he uh, took, fact, the person who is in our early experiences with mescaline, but that's not part of this. Uh, he took the small dosage, had no effect at all, so he took a, a normal dosage. And he went into a, a true uh, hallucinogenic state. But here, hallucinogenic in the sense, you see things that no one else can see. You are truly hallucinating. He walked across the living room and into a closed door and came back a little bit shaken up. And I said, Why, what was going on? Well, she was a beautiful girl and she went into that room. And uh, the, the door had never been opened, and we didn't see her at all. And finally, after a couple, three, four hours, he said, uh, I think I'd like to just lie down and sleep it off for a little bit. Sure, go ahead and lie down and sleep it off. He went into the bedroom and lay down for a while. And then he got up, because the fire engine went by outside, and he wanted to go out and help direct the traffic around the fire truck. Uh, we said, don't, just stay, stay, in, stay, in the, stay in the house. And all this went on and on. And finally, it was, I, I think... I didn't know quite know when he would be safe to go, because he, he could not really tell fact from from fiction. And uh, finally, he responded in a very sane, solid way, and uh, let him drive back into town, which was a mistake. Um, he was driving, and he, he he had a buddy from his medical school who was sitting alongside him, talking with him, uh, going across the bridge into San Francisco. And he turned to look at his buddy, and the buddy popped into the back seat. And he looked in the back seat, and there was no buddy there. So he, what he did, he turned on, the, he, the radio was going in his car. I forget the name of the singer, but a, a very favorite singer of his. Bessie Smith. Bessie Smith? Bessie Smith. Yeah. And um, he did not have that record of hers. And so to the end of the, toward the end of the record, he turned the volume up a little bit so he could uh, hear the, the name of the record. And the radio had not been on. So he got off the bridge safely. He <laughs> parked his car, got a taxi, and went home in a taxi. And uh, <laughs> I now know not if a person's on a true hallucinogenic, be, give him an extra few hours. Um, but the interesting thing, I saw him about a week, week and a half later, and he told me all the, the, this adventure of the radio on the, on the car. And I said, how long did it take you to get back to normal? And he looked at me with a funny look and says, how do you tell? <laughs> The main question I'd like to ask is many cultures have used these entheogenic substances to, to gain direct information and knowledge from the other side. Do you think it's credible and possible for people in our culture today to actually gain direct inspiration and direction to where we need to go in the future? 
with you. Um, I don't see why there should be any, any difference. Uh, the, the human beings have been um, pretty much the same uh, for tens of thousands of years. And um, I, I think you'll find in different countries in the world now uh, that the, the spiritual world and the spiritual path um, is, is uh, you know, part uh, going after those particular truths is, is as much a part of their life as, as uh, eating and drinking. Uh, it's just in, in the Western um, uh, technologically developed uh, part of the world that we're in a, a period now of skepticism and um, what you might call materialistic thinking. But I, I think the, uh, the, the tendency to uh, feel that the only reality is, you know, what the five senses can, can uh, touch, I think it's because of fear. Uh, people are very much afraid of their own unconscious. And I think that is... Uh, one of the main reasons that so many laws have been developed uh, against psychedelic, uh, use of psychedelic drugs or visionary plants, it's because uh, people are projecting their own fears of what the unconscious contains onto everyone else. And uh, when you grow up in, in a family, particularly, that, that never discusses dreams, and doesn't discuss the reasons people do. Uh, they call it psychologizing and dismiss it out of hand. Then uh, you, you're unfamiliar with the workings of the human psyche. Uh, and then it becomes a, a fearful thing. Uh, so that when people hear, uh, those kinds of people hear about um, somebody taking a drug that that opens up the unconscious, they think immediately of axe murderer. You know, that all of us have a, a potential axe murderer down deep inside. And uh, there is a great fear that that, that may uh, emerge and that there'll be, you'll have no control over it. In fact, I would suspect that everybody before their first psychedelic experience uh, has a fear of that kind, either the murderer or the beast, which is the shadow part of ourselves. And how am I going to retain control over something like that if it takes me over? I don't know any of us who haven't had thoughts along that line. And I think um, very gradually with more publications and with more research like um, uh, the Johns Hopkins one that was just published, very gradually, people are going to think, well, maybe we can take more of a look at these things. Maybe they aren't so very dangerous, or you know, if we use them the right way, etc. It's going to take a long time, uh, but I think it'll happen. And I, I think uh, uh, human beings are just as capable of uh, doing this kind of inner work and, uh, and seeking out uh, the answers uh, as uh, they ever were. I was curious about, uh, with more people using ethnogenic and psychedelic um, substances that are traditionally used in a ceremonial setting or with a ceremonial setting, 
um, what your feelings are about them being used without that or their, the role of ceremony. You mean w without ritual or a, a ceremony? Correct. Uh, uh, it's, it's interesting, somebody talked about that yesterday. Um, in my own experience, everybody uh, who uses a, a, a psychedelic drug with other people uh, will sort of uh, intuitively uh, says certain words before they embark. Uh, it's usually something like uh, blessings on our journey. But that comes naturally. I, I think, I, I believe that if you want to do um, a classic uh, Native American uh, ceremony, that's wonderful. I think that's good. Uh, but it's not necessary for a good experience. It's just, it, it just makes you uh, feel better. And uh, uh, the small ritual like blessings on our journey uh, does the same thing. Um, there is no danger in, in, in not having ritual. It's, it just eases the soul a little bit when you're embarking on something that's unknown. I'd like to thank you on behalf of everybody here for changing our lives one way or another, indirectly or directly. <laughs> um, My, my question is really quick. It's just kind of a factual question. I've had um, a couple phenethylamines for about a year and a half, uh, 2CT7, 2CP, and 2CT21. And I was wondering what their shelf life was like, whether they were still safe to eat or they've been yeah. around too long. Uh, in general, sulfur compounds have an intrinsic instability. But uh, and this, many, many of these compounds are quite sensitive to hydrolysis or to change. I think the general rule would be to keep things dry, keep things out of light, and keep things cold. Refrigerated, refrigerated or, or in the freezer, refrigerated, but don't let moisture get in and don't let light get in. And I think the uh, shelf life should be indefinite. I see no reason there would be a decomposition, unless the material is, say, sp uh, intrinsically unstable. But then that speaks against its being used at all, because you don't know what you're, what you're getting. No, I think the stability is intrinsically, the way it is, in, is there, if you store it in ways it is not exposed to air or to light or to heat. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Good. Oh. Uh, I want to add something. Um, it's very nice for us to, to be thanked a lot, but uh, we didn't change your life. You made the de decision to use certain things and to, uh, to learn from them. Um, as a couple in a psychedelic path, what advice or knowledge or wisdom would you give to other couples embarking on the same journey and what what substances would you recommend for a couple like MDMA, LSD, or 2CB, or whatnot? Well, uh, people who are having trouble in their relationships and uh, um, maybe before they get married or after they get married, uh, the MDMA has always been the magical thing that, that uh, allowed them to open up and um, get the, the, those initial love feelings back. Um, 
Otherwise, I, I don't think you can, you can give advice except uh, respect each other uh, and take care of each other. And that's all. This brings up one point I think should be emphasized here. Uh, when other people are considering an experience, I think one of the uh, risks that has to be uh, thought through and followed with care is things like LSD and MDMA and 2CB are felonies to possess and to use. So you must reinforce the fact that these materials are illegal and that you cannot brag about it or run around downtown down the sidewalk screaming, hey, LSD really is a neat thing to try. Uh, that, that precaution cannot be, cannot be underemphasized. Uh, another point in, pardon? Over oh, cannot be overemphasized. Under, over, yeah, over, right. <laughs> uh, another thing that has to be kept in mind is that studies have been made, for example, on how much MDMA is in an MDMA tablet. And sometimes there is none. These materials, since they are illegal, are put together uh, under mysterious circumstances, and they can put any label on anything they wish, from caffeine to uh, who knows, uh, phenobarb, and call it ecstasy. So you have this as an added problem. You have no way of identifying what it is, not easily, uh, what it is you're taking. If you take it into a uh, a company that does work with GCMS and can tell you what it is, they're also obliged to inform the authorities that they have been given a, a Schedule One drug for analysis. So th this cannot be casually done. This, I think, is one of the strongest arguments for legalization, is to put these materials where they can be obtained, say, through a pharmacy or through some form of a legal arrangement that allows their purity to be established and even more so their identity to be verified. Uh, Anne and Sach, uh, my question is about MDMA and harm reduction. There is some controversy about neurotoxicity and possible prevention of that by SSRIs. I was wondering uh, whether you thought that that was scientifically valid, and if so, whether there were certain drugs that were better than others for this purpose. Well, I can address the uh, neurotoxicity fairly straightforward. Most of the work has been done in animals and with monstrous overdoses. And indeed, there are damages that can be shown. There is no really consistent evidence of neurotoxicity in human that I'm aware of. There are accidents, there are things that can occur. I was reading a paper not long ago in Nature, no, it was in some um, British pharmacological um, magazine, in which it talked about the dangers of, the human dangers of MDMA and the only place the MDMA was used in the paper was in the abstract and in the title. In the paper, they're talking about MDA. But they, obviously, you don't get published as readily if you talk about something that's not as notoriously popular as MDMA. So they put the one word in the title and the other chemical, what they were looking at. And one of the damages that came was, was a series of was a broken bone. And it turned out the person had stumbled at the top of a staircase and had fallen downstairs but the person had had MDA in him, and hence they blamed MDA uh, as, a, as a damaging thing. Hi. Uh, first of all, I'd just like to say how great it's been camping with you guys at Entheon Village. I will never forget it. Somebody asked, answer my question. Um, 
while I was waiting in line, but I came up with another one. I was just wondering what you think about poly drug use, whereas it pertains to 2CB and 2CI, um, an experience I had, whereas I took 2CB and then in the come down I took MDMA, and the crossover between those two was actually rather terrifying. I was just wondering if you have any <laughs> anything to say on that subject. Uh, I, I will add one, th- I'll add one thing, there's nothing there to add to it. Comment, make one comment that comes immediately to mind is the idea of mixing drugs. You mentioned the, you, this following up with that. Uh, a mixture of two drugs is a new drug in my mind. And if you want to make a combination of MDMA, let's say, and, and, uh, M, and um, 2C, 2CT, whatever it was, uh, you have to start, as I, from my point of view, as a brand new drug and start with very small amounts and work yourself up over time with that combination. Because two drugs that are different in their action <clears throat> could very well have a combined action that is not predictable from either one. So it is a new drug and cannot casually be used as a, um, as a uh, follow-up. Uh, this was a very nice trip. I think I'll follow it up with some of that. And it's getting kind of late. I have to smoke a little pot and finish up the day. Uh, you are, you're mixing drugs and you cannot predict uh, from their individual activity what their combined activity will be. Um, that's very interesting. Uh, where are you? Uh, oh, okay. Right. Uh, it's very interesting that you had a, a, a 2CB followed by MDMA. Uh, then MDMA, yeah. Um, because uh, one, one combination uh, that does work uh, is MDMA followed by 2CB. Uh, that was used uh, a lot in, in therapy, again, before either of them became illegal, um, in, in which case you have a, a, a reasonable, I thought that was a cat, but it's probably a baby. <laughs> oh. oh, gosh. No, it's just too hot. Um, if, if you take the MDMA first, uh, then about... Two hours later, you take the 2CB, but you go way down in dosage on the 2CB because the MDMA um, makes the 2CB effect stronger. But uh, in general, I, I would go along with Sasha. Of course, we are used to thinking in terms of research, and you never mix drugs uh, if you're doing research because, you know, you, you come out with... Uh, uh, no effect that you can depend on. And um, I've met an awful lot of people who mix drugs all the time and uh, they could get pretty messed up. I, I think it, it becomes really toxic uh, to your body and to your mind. Hi, thank you um, for coming out to Black Rock City and bearing the heat with us all. Um, could you talk a little bit about your experience with ayahuasca um, what your experience has been and, and how you see it benefiting us. Um, let me say first that, that uh, I have a young relative uh, who, th- who believes and feels that ayahuasca is the best teacher that there is uh, for somebody who's on a spiritual path. And uh, a lot of the people we know feel that way. Uh, for, for Sasha and me, um, 
again, people are very different and uh, the chemistry of each body is a little different. Uh, neither of us uh, can really tolerate uh, marijuana, believe it or not. Um, marijuana gives me a, a, a full-fledged psychedelic experience and a pretty paranoid one. And I've tried it many times over and it still is not my ally. And uh, Sasha feels that he just doesn't learn anything f from, uh, from that. So we, we, don't, uh, we don't try pot. Um, the ayahuasca, we had four experiences. Uh, and usually uh, when you go to some special place uh, at, to undergo the, the ayahuasca, th they, they give you a nighttime experience first and then a daytime experience over the weekend. And the first time uh, we, we tried it, it was a very low level uh, because we are cautious, fraidy cats. Um, and it was a, a perfectly pleasant that, that I remember. It was pleasant, uh, not the, the, the greatest experience in the world, but pleasant enough so that when we were invited six months later, uh, to have another try at it, um, we didn't hesitate. The second time, however, was very interesting. We again uh, took a very low level, and uh, Sasha underwent a um, very difficult experience, which is entirely different than mine. Um, mine was a bit like trying not to get run over by a fast-moving train. Uh, there was no way to learn anything except just how to stay alive. Uh, that's the way it felt. But an interesting thing happened. Uh, this is during the first experience at night. Um, a voice uh, said to me very clearly, um, don't come here again. Uh, it didn't mean the place. It meant the drug. And I said, okay. And then uh, the next day, we compared notes and discovered we'd both, both had a rough time. So we were going to, for the next experience, um, be very, 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 very cautious and take even lower so that it wouldn't last long and surely it couldn't do any damage. <laughs> and it was, uh, for me, it was a repeat of the, the fast freight train which wanted to run over my head. Um, it didn't last as long. And then the voice came back and said, didn't you hear me the first time? <laughs> so that was it. I remember that uh, the, the latter experience. I had totally different effects from it. Uh, I was sitting back and letting my eyes stay closed so I maybe get some visual input. And in the back of my eyes, there was the development of a very dull red color. I was seeing, they were filling my field of vision. And as I watched, it got brighter and brighter red, then it became bright orange, then it became really, really brilliantly yellow, and then it was brilliantly white, actually blinding, almost painfully white. So I opened my eyes to, to become rational again, and I'd vomit. Then I sit back, and thank goodness that little tub staying right there, because I had this dull red color again, and the whole process was repeated again, the tub began filling with, with what left I had left in my tummy. Uh, and uh, I didn't find this to be particularly enlightening. <laughs> I, 
So I, uh, that, that was my, I don't know the, I know the source, but I don't know the, uh, I did not do an analysis on the actual combination. I don't know really what all was in there. I'm sorry to report that at this point our mini-disc reached its capacity, and so we're going to have to stop here for now. There may be a few more questions and answers that I captured on my cassette tape recorder, but I haven't had a chance to go through all of those tapes yet. And if it turns out that I did get a decent recording of the end of this session, I'll be sure to include it with some of the other Planque Norte talks in a future podcast. I would like to thank all of you who showed up for this presentation, and again, I want to offer my apologies to all of you who were in line to ask a question but didn't have the chance. From the collective groan that I heard <laughs> when I announced that we'd run out of time, I believe that we probably could still be there peppering Ann and Sasha with a continuous barrage of questions that would probably last until next year's burn. In any event, it was an historic event, as this was the Shulgin's first time to attend a Burning Man festival. And I'm sure that they deeply appreciated the outpouring of love and affection that was so evident in the big tent that day. And to Ann and Sasha, well, there really is no better way for me to say it than to simply say thank you. Thank you from the entire Burning Man community for braving the conditions on the playa to bring your unique blend of energy to this year's event. I know that for me, the 2006 burn will always be remembered as the year the Shulgans were there. And my thanks again go out to Darren, Mark, Michael, Brian, and the rest of the Entheon Village crew and supporters who rose to the occasion and magically provided our sound system for this talk. It simply wouldn't have taken place without you guys. And my thanks also to Chateau Hayuk for the use of your music here in the Psychedelic Salon. And for now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. Thank you.